This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you for the gift of life. There are many who have woken up this morning in hospital beds. There are some in war-torn zones. There are some who experience natural disaster, whose homes have flooded. There are others who have experienced displacement, they're refugees. But you have led us in pleasant pastures. We're here at this GYC conference, and we've eaten well, and we're warm. And Lord, we don't deserve these mercies, but we thank you. And as much as you have smiled upon us, we're in debt to others to share your grace and your love, your goodness. Help us to be ever mindful that the good things of life come from you, and ever mindful that we are your children to serve, to bless others who are less fortunate. In Christ's name, amen. Let me tell you a little bit about our seminar. Yesterday, I did four sessions, and some of you were here, and I notice you've come back for a second dose, and so welcome again. We are going to summarize kind of what we did in the first and second seminar yesterday, and then tomorrow afternoon we'll summarize what we have done in the third and fourth seminar. So this is really a summary of the two seminars. Our seminar is entitled Remnant Identity. The Bible uses the term remnant both in the Old and New Testament. And the question we need to really raise at the beginning is, when Seventh-day Adventists speak about the fact of the remnant, we talk about the Seventh-day Adventist church as the remnant church, is that an elitist term? Is that a term of arrogance and pride? Is it something akin to a cult mentality? where the cult says, we are the faithful ones, and everybody else who does not think like we are is not faithful, and they're all lost. When you look at the term remnant in the Bible, it's not any elitist term at all. It rather is a term that describes a people who are faithful and loyal to God. We're going to go through the New Testament through the Old Testament. Look at that concept, that idea of the remnant. In fact, Seventh-day Adventists do not believe that those who have not yet accepted the Adventist message are lost in any way. We believe that there are faithful Muslims and Hindus and a variety of those of different Christian persuasions. In fact, when you look at Revelation 18 and it talks about the fall of Babylon, it says, come out of her who? My people. And what did Jesus say? He said, many sheep I have that are not of this fold, but them I must also gather in. When Seventh-day Adventists talk about the term, the remnant, they're talking about it in the biblical concept. And so we want to look at identity. Is identity important? Is identity important? Is who you are, your self-understanding, is that important? If Seventh-day Adventists believed that we were simply one of a thousand religious denominations on the landscape of history, and that all of those denominations were essentially the same, would that impact our mission? Would it impact our evangelistic proclamation? It really would. Because if you take away this passion of a unique movement raised up by God. And if you take away this passion that fuels our people, sending out missionaries to the end of the earth, if what we say makes little difference or has little significance, if Adventists are simply one of a multitude of religious denominations on the landscape of religious history, if that is true, which it is not, but if it were true, that would seriously impact our entire mission. So your self-identity, who you understand yourself to be, makes all the difference in your mission, in proclamation. 
why would a person make a decision to leave their job working on Sabbath and risk not being able to pay their mortgage or risk not being able to pay their car payment simply to join a church that was like every other church? They wouldn't make that risk, would they? But understanding that God has a people today whom he has raised up uniquely makes all the difference. When we talk about the remnant, the text that most often comes to mind is found in what book of the Bible? What book of the Bible is the text that we usually quote for the remnant? Where's that found? Revelation. What chapter? Chapter 12. What verse? 17. This is a good class. I can see that already. Revelation, the 12th chapter, the 17th verse. So we'll begin there. We won't stay there very long at the beginning. We will come back to it a little later. Revelation, the 12th chapter, you're looking there at verse 17. Now, various translations of the Bible treat this text differently. And I'm going to share with you one of the real significant differences, which is kind of a mistranslation. I typically use the New King James Version of the Bible because it's a little clearer, but New King James is not good on Revelation 12, verse 17. And I'll share with you why as we go on in our study. King James is a better translation, as are a number of other translations. But Revelation 12, verse 17 says, The dragon, who's that, the dragon? Who is that? Satan was enraged with the woman. What's enraged mean? Pleasant, happy, cheerful, angry. So the dragon Satan is angry with the woman. Who's the woman? The church. In Revelation, how many women are there? There are two. There's the woman of Revelation 12 and the woman of Revelation 17. There is the bride of Jesus who is faithful to Christ, and then there's the harlot woman who's apostatized and drifted from her true lover and committed spiritual fornication with the world. So in Revelation, you have Revelation is a series of twos. You have contrasting twos. You have the mark of the beast and the seal of God. You have the city of Babylon, the city of Jerusalem. You have the bride of Christ and you have the harlot woman. Uh, you have the harvest of golden grain and the harvest of gory grapes in the book of Revelation. Uh, throughout Revelation, it's this book of contrasts. And so here we see the dragon, Satan, angry with the woman, the church. He goes to make war. Now here is where the New King James doesn't give us the best translation. It says, with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Does anybody have a King James version of the Bible here? Raise your hand if you do. Rather than rest of her offspring, what does the King James say? The remnant of her seed. So New King James substitutes rest for remnant. Is there a difference? There is a major difference. When you look at the word rest, it's something that's simply left over. For example, my wife cooks peas, and there are too much peas, and she has, so we put peas in the refrigerator. That's the rest. They're left over. Okay, that's the leftover amount. Uh, sometimes leftovers are pretty good when you eat them, but sometimes they are not quite as good. Sometimes leftovers spoil, right? The remnant concept in the Bible is much larger than rest. The first time we find remnant in the Bible is in the book of Genesis. It's the first time the word is used. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 45 and verse 7. And in Genesis 45, we're going to spend time in the Old Testament looking at this word remnant trying to discover how the Bible uses the word, and then we're going to, at the end of our class, or toward the end, the last third, apply that to today's church. Genesis 45, and you're looking there at Genesis 45, verse 7. This is the story of Joseph. And you remember, Joseph went from his home to being betrayed by his brothers. He ended up in the pit, and then he went to the palace, then he went to the prison, then he went to the palace. And Joseph in Egypt became 
a prime minister of Egypt next to Pharaoh. And there, during the seven years of plenty, Joseph had Egypt store grain. And the seven years of famine took place. And when Genesis 45 is recorded, we are two years into the famine. And so in Genesis 45, and let your eyes drop down to verse 5, 6, and 7. Joseph's brothers come to him. And as they do, Joseph is explaining to his brothers what has happened during the time of the famine. So Genesis 45, verse 5. But now do not therefore be grieved nor angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Was Joseph bitter and angry because of the treatment of his brothers? Did Joseph live his life filled with resentment because of what his family did to him? There are people here, possibly in class, whose parents have gone through divorce, who don't have the greatest relationship with family members, maybe a brother, a sister, and anger doesn't solve the problem. Joseph recognized that God was bigger than the circumstances of his life. We serve a God that is a lot bigger, a lot greater, a lot larger than the events that happen to us in life. And so Joseph knew that. Joseph understood that. And you go back to Genesis chapter 45, and you're looking at verse 6 and 7. For these two years, now the famine was to be for seven years. These two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Now verse 7 is interesting. God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Does anybody have another word in your translation for posterity? God sent me before you to preserve a posterity. Anybody have another one? A what remnant? What translation are you using? King James, okay. A, a remnant. Now the word here, and this is very critical in understanding the remnant. The word here in the Hebrew language is the word sharif. Can you say that with me? Sharif. Sharif is used 55 times in the Old Testament to describe the remnant. So what is the remnant? The remnant is the posterity. The remnant has the spiritual DNA of the original. So the remnant in the Old Testament are a group of people that have the spiritual DNA of the original. So Joseph is saying, God has sent me here to preserve a posterity. In other words, so that all of Israel, the chosen people of God, will not die of the famine. We will preserve the seed. So when you are thinking about the remnant, think not about kind of a bolt of cloth that we've sometimes used in evangelism, and that's okay, but it's not the most accurate, that we've cut off. Think about a living, breathing organism. Think about DNA. Think about genetics. You know, um, if somebody took a picture of your mother when she was... 17 and a picture of you when you were 17 would there be any similarities if somebody took a picture of your father when he was 17 and you were 17 have you ever heard the expression you're a chip off the old block have you ever heard that if you're from the united states you may have that's an expression you know you have this block of marble and you're just kind of a chip off it you know you, you got the eyes of your mother you know, you got the temperament of your mother. You have the uh, disposition of your father. You've got the hair texture of your father, the, the skin tone of your father. You've got the eyes. You, you act. You, you know, the other day, it was really funny. My wife is 71 years old, and uh, likewise, yours truly. I'm in my 71st year. Uh, you know, I had a funny thing happen to me. Uh, I had taped some it-is-written television programs 20 years ago, and they showed them on television. And a lady wrote me a letter, and she said, 
dear Pastor Mark, you don't look any different than you did 20 years ago. We wrote back and said, yeah, that program was taped 20 years ago. Um, but you know, my wife is gonna run a marathon. She ran last year, 26 miles, point two, at 70 years old. She came third in her age bracket. She ran in Florida, and many thousand people run in that marathon. And so my daughter this year is gonna run with my wife in the marathon. And so they were training. They were gonna run like one day 13 miles to practice for this marathon. And so I said, look, let me take some pictures of you. So when they went out to train, they both started to run. My wife had her left hand down, her right hand up. And when I took the picture, without choreographing it, the pose of my wife and the pose of my daughter, the way they were running was exactly the same. That's DNA. In the book of Revelation, Starting in Genesis chapter 45, verse 7, the remnant have the DNA. They have the spiritual characteristics. They have the, the characteristics of faithfulness to God. Now, in the Old Testament, this is what you find. God does three things with his remnant. We'll show you that. He preserves his remnant. He pardons his remnant. He purifies his remnant so that he can empower his remnant for mission. He does three things. He always preserves the remnant. He always pardons the remnant. He always, he always purifies the remnant. And he always empowers the remnant for mission. Next text we're turning to. And I'm so glad you have your Bible. And I know if you're using your iPhone, you are not texting. You're looking at the text. Um, Isaiah chapter 10. We're looking at verse 20 to 22. Once you understand the remnant in the Old Testament, the book of Revelation becomes alive. Many people do not understand Revelation because they have not studied the Old Testament deeply, so they don't understand the allusions. There are 404 full texts or partial texts from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation alone, 404 allusions. Uh, we're looking at the book of Isaiah. We're studying the remnant in the Old Testament, so we better understand the remnant in Revelation. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20 to 22. God does three things with the remnant. He preserves them. And in the Old Testament, you've got famine, you've got disaster, you have war. And in disaster, famine, and war, God's always preserving his remnant, preserving a posterity that are faithful to him that reveal his grace and glory to the world. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20 to 22. It shall come to pass... Now, this is uh, talking about Assyria, and uh, it's talking about the attacks on Israel, the judgments on Assyria, and then it talks about God preserving a remnant, uh, that DNA, that spiritual genetic characteristics are, are, of his people are preserved. Uh, Isaiah 10, verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped from the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the land of the sea, yet a remnant of them will, will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. What's that saying? Assyria had attacked Israel, but God moved to preserve a remnant who he led from the destruction that took place with Assyria back to true worship in Jerusalem. So what do we find about the remnant here? We find that God had a people that he would lead from apostasy to Jerusalem to establish true worship. A profile of the remnant is coming. You see, who, your identity makes all the difference. Who you, who you are, if Seventh-day Adventists are simply another religious denomination on the landscape of religion, why again would we fuel mission to go to the ends of the earth? But if indeed, the DNA characteristics of God's
people throughout the ages are manifest within the Adventist church. If, as God has preserved his people and pardoned them and purified them in the Old Testament, if he wanted to empower them to make a major difference around the world, if that was God's indeed intent with Old Testament Israel, and if he has a remnant again that he pardons, a remnant again that he purifies, a remnant again that he preserves, if indeed he has a people that we, he will empower by his spirit to go to the ends of the earth, then this movement is the most exciting movement in the history of the world. There's nothing more exciting than being part of the Seventh Adventist Church, being part of an, an identity. You know, I have preached the Adventist message now for 50 years. I've stood on many of the great platforms of the world, including an Olympic stadium in, in Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea, where 100,000 people came, many political officials to our uh, evangelistic meetings in Kremlin, in Moscow, a variety of Eastern European countries, in London and so forth in different places around the world. And I'm always thrilled to preach the Adventist message for one basic reason. When I study scripture, I recognize that God has raised up an end time movement that is unique, that is to preserve his truth and to reveal his character to the ends of the earth. And so looking at the Old Testament, that's what we find. The God who preserves the remnant, the God who pardons the remnant, God who purifies the remnant. Understanding this will make a big difference when we come to Revelation. Take your Bible, please, and turn to Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37. And you're looking there again at verse 31 and 32. Isaiah 37, verse 31 and 32. And this is talking about, again, Assyria. It's talking about Sennacherib, who comes to attack and destroy God's people. And it shows God's response to them. And again, look at uh, Isaiah 31, 37, Isaiah 37, verse 31 and 32. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. God's remnant is rooted. They take root downward. What's that mean? They're rooted in his word, rooted in his love, rooted in his character. So here the remnant in Isaiah 37 have roots. If you have a, tree, a, a plant that springs up rapidly with few roots, when the wind comes, when the sun shines, it often destroys the plant. God talks about the remnant. Here are the remnant. They have deep roots in his word, deep roots of faithfulness, deep roots of commitment, deep roots of loyalty. So they, have, they grow downward. But notice what it also says in the text about the remnant. Verse 31, the remnant who escaped the, of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. The deeper your roots downward, the more fruit you bear upward. So the remnant have been preserved by God from the idolatry of the culture around them. The remnant have stood out and been willing to be different. They've made character decisions. Who are these remnant? They stand apart from the idolaters of Babylon. They stand apart from the sun worshipers of Babylon. They stand apart from the immorality of Babylon. They are not partying on New Year's Eve in the hotel lobby. They're not riding elevators with bottles of beer in their hand and wine in their glasses. They recognize that they have a higher calling, a greater destiny. They have roots downward. They are rooted in God's word. They are rooted in Christ. They are rooted in a unique message for end time. And they grow. They bear fruit. They witness they bear fruit in two ways. The fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, and long-suffering are manifest in their lives. And secondly, they bear fruit in witnessing. Who are these remnant in the Old Testament? They are the seed. They, they have the DNA. They are a corporate whole. Israel, who God calls out for a special purpose and a special uh, function there to preserve a knowledge of his love and grace and goodness. 
Now, when you come to Micah, the fourth chapter, take your Bible, turn to Micah, we have God's activity in and among this people who he's called out. Micah, the fourth chapter. Now, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you have two types of prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. Why are the major prophets major? Is it because their message is more important than the minor prophets? So the minor prophets we can ignore, right? And the major prophets we have to concentrate on because one are major, one are minor. Is that true? On a piano, do you have major notes and minor notes? Now, I don't know anything about music, so somebody's going to have to help me here. I just thought about that off the top of my head. You got major notes or minor notes on, uh, in a piano? So the minor notes you don't have to play, you just play the major ones, right? The minor notes and the major notes, yeah. So in the, I don't know about the piano, but I know about the Bible. The, the major prophets, you see, it's not that they have a major message and the minor prophets have a minor message, not at all. Major prophets' writings are longer. Minor prophets' writings are, are shorter. Now, here's an interesting thing about those minor prophets, though. Whereas the major prophets often make predictions regarding Israel, the minor prophets often certainly speak to Israel, but often they focus on last days of verse history. And so I want you to go over to Micah, the fourth chapter. It's very interesting. There's many allusions, both in the major and minor prophets, to, um, to, to the history of Israel. But also there are parallels within time. So you're looking at Micah, the fourth chapter, as we study this, this concept of the remnant. Micah chapter 4. You're looking at verse 6 through 8. Micah 4, verse 6 through 8. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast and those whom I've afflicted. And I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. For now on, even forever, O you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Zion. What is this talking about, the former dominion? Israel, that had been in apostasy, would experience a revival. And God would lead a remnant. He would lead a people out of Egypt. He eventually would lead them through the wilderness, eventually lead them into the promised land. So the first dominion, that is the plan of God, that Israel be a light of the world, would be accomplished by God. That was his, his design. That was his purpose for Israel. Just as God led Israel out of Egypt, and Israel wandered in the wilderness, but a remnant of those from the wilderness experience went into the promised land, so God led a people out of spiritual Egypt, raised up a divine movement that have, would have the spiritual characteristics and the DNA of his original faithful men and women. And he would lead them through the wilderness into the ultimate promised land. And uh, the di first dominion would be restored with the earth made new, uh, and a new heavens and a new earth, and Eden would be made over. That would be the first dominion. But the expression that I'm very interested in here is this. Because this clears up a great number of misunderstandings. The remnant are not some spiritual elite. They are not some super holy perfectionistic people. But notice what scripture says. I will assemble, verse 6, the lame. I will gather the outcast. Have you ever felt that you were spiritually lame? that you really wanted to overcome impurity, but you fell and fell again. You really wanted to overcome impatience, unkindness, but you fell and fell again. You feel that you've been bruised and that you're lame. You look back over your past life and you're in your 20s and you see some things you did in your late teens and you wonder whether God can use you because of the bruises, the lameness, if anybody was an outcast, you feel you were the outcast. You went to an Adventist school, but things didn't resonate in your heart and mind. 
You did some things you look back on now you wish you wouldn't have done. You went to a secular university and in your early years of that university you got involved in the party crowd and you're just coming to GYC and coming back. I have incredible good news for you. The message to the remnant is this. God says, I'm gathering the lame. I'm gathering the broken. I'm gathering the bruised. I'm gathering those that have failed. I'm gathering the weak. I'm gathering them in to an end time movement. And by my grace, I'm going to change their lives. I'm going to heal their hurts. You say, talk about lameness. I have felt crippled since I was a young child because my family was so dysfunctional. God loves to take the lame. He loves to take the outcasts. He loves to take those who feel hopeless and give them hope. Those who feel weak, he loves to give them strength. Those who feel ignorant, he loves to show them the way. Who are the remnant? They are a group of men and women, young people, just like you, just like me, who have been gathered in by the grace of God into an end-time movement in which he'll reveal his love and grace through them to the world. That's who the remnant are. They are those that are faithful, that are loyal to God in this end time. We've seen that in Micah chapter, five, chapter 4. Now take your Bible and look over at Zephaniah chapter 3. What do these minor prophets speak about the end time, end time remnant? Zephaniah, the third chapter. When we come to Revelation, which we shall do, this remnant idea will jump off the pages once you understand what indeed we are discussing now. Zephaniah chapter 3. You're looking here at verse 14. Zephaniah 3 verse 14 and onward to verse 17. Have your Bible? Zephaniah 3 verse 14 to 17. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O, o, o Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. This is happy, joyful rejoicing, O daughter of Zion. Why? The Lord has taken away your judgments. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Who are the remnant? They are the seed. They are the DNA of the original. They are those that God has preserved. They are those that God has called out. They are those that are faithful to God. He has taken away the judgment. There is no condemnation now to those that are in Christ Jesus. Look, it says, the Lord has taken away your judgments. He's cast out your enemy. Who are the remnant? They have come to Jesus Christ, and Christ has triumphed over the principalities and powers of hell in their life. He has cast out the enemy from their lives. They are not possessed by the enemy, but possessed by Jesus. It says, that thou hast cast out the enemy, the Lord has taken away the judgments. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more in that day it shall be said of Jerusalem. Do not fear Zion. Who are Zion? God's people, the remnant. Let not your hands be weak. Why not? Because God's your strength. The Lord, your God, in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Who are these? Verse 13 tells you. They are the remnant of Israel who are faithful to God. When it says they do no unrighteousness, what's that talking about? It's talking about they have a heart like Jesus had. You remember in John 8, verse 29, it says, Jesus says, I do always those things that please the Father. And in Hebrews 10, verse 7, it says, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it's written of me to do thy will, O God. And you remember Jesus in Gethsemane in Matthew 26 says, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Who are the remnant? They are those that have been pardoned by Christ, called by Christ, those whose hearts want to do one thing, and that's to please Christ. Jesus sings over them. The expression in Zephaniah 3 that I love is verse 17. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you with his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. Jesus rejoices over those who make a commitment to be loyal and faithful to him. There's a lot in this world that makes Jesus cry. Last night, 
my wife and I wanted to go for a walk because often in the evenings after we have preached or given Bible studies or taught all day, we walk. I try to walk five miles a day. My wife jogs. When she goes with me, we walk. But uh, she's a jogger. And so we went, I came out of the hotel last night, New Year's Eve, and I said to the doorman at the hotel, I said, look, we want to go for a walk. Tell me where it's safe to go. I don't feel like getting mugged tonight. And uh, he said, well, if you go left, you walk down a couple blocks, it'll probably be safe there to go. He said, but you just have to watch out for one thing. I said, if it's just one thing, that's not too bad. What's the one thing? He said, the drunks. He said, this is New Year's Eve, and there's going to be drunks all over the streets, so just watch out that you don't get hit by some drunks. And I just commented. I said, well, I'm not worried about the drunks because they can't run and I can. And so anyway, we went out on the street, and we walked probably for 10 minutes, and we knew that wasn't the place we wanted to be. Um, and I've thought about it a great deal. Human beings created in the image of God with destiny that is incredibly high, with enormous potential, yet thinking that the essence of joy in life is to go out and get wasted on New Year's Eve and get drunk and wake up the next morning with a hangover and not wait to be able to do it again. And I thought, as God looks down on this scene, I wonder if God is crying. I wonder if God is weeping. I wonder if there's a tear in God's eye. Has anybody ever said to you, how's your day going? Has anybody ever said that to you, how's your day going? Have you ever said to God, how's your day going? Have you ever got up in the morning and said, God, I just wonder, or go to bed at night, God, how'd your day go today? If God could talk to you, and you asked God, how is your day going today? How'd your day go, God? What do you think God would say? I think God would say to me, Mark, my day went rough today. I was with millions of Syrian refugees that had little to eat, all created in the image of God. Homeless, shaking in the European cold, fleeing from oppressive regimes. I was with children on the continent of Africa born with HIV, AIDS positive, who have just a few years to live. I was with every woman whose husband got drunk and came home and smashed her in the face and broke her nose. I was with every baby that was born deformed. I was with every mother who held a baby in her hands, the first child born dead. I was with every victim of war in Iraq, those oppressed by oppressive regimes in prison. I was at every funeral today, and the problem, Mark, is I've got to go through that tomorrow again and again and again. Do you think God ever cries? Do you think God ever cries? I think I hear God crying. Adam and Eve sin, and I think I hear God crying. Israel dances around a golden calf, and I think I hear God crying. And Israel apostatizes, and I think I hear God crying. And Christ is nailed to a cross, and I think I hear God crying. Is there anything, though, that can make Jesus happy? Is there anything that makes Jesus sing? Is there anything that brings gladness to Jesus' heart? In the context of the remnant, in the context of Old Testament Israel that is faithful to God, in the context of the grace of Christ pardoning them, in the context of God raising up an end-time people that reveal his love and share his grace with the world, we have this marvelous statement in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord, your God in your midst, the Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. When young people commit their lives to Christ, joy fills his soul in a world of sorrow. When God gathers together a last-day remnant who are loyal and faithful to him, and when they focus on mission to share his love with the world, Jesus sings, I know this, 
Birds were made to fly, and fish were made to swim, and human beings were made to serve God. And when we come to him with all of our hearts and all of our souls, when he gathers his last day remnant, whose hearts are committed to be faithful to him, all of heaven sings. I want to make heaven sing, don't you? I don't want to make Jesus sad. I don't want tears to flow from his eyes. I want Jesus to be glad. I want him to sing. And when young people dedicate their lives to him, to go out faithfully to him in mission, all of heaven rejoices. Old Testament remnant, who are they? They are those that God has preserved. They are those that God has pardoned. They are those that God has purified. They are those that are faithful to God. They are those for whom commitment to God means everything in their life. We now go to the New Testament. Romans, the 11th chapter. Who are the remnant in the New Testament? And how does this play, relate to an end-time remnant in the book of Revelation? Romans, the 11th chapter. Romans 11 describes the fact that although Israel as a corporate nation, not individuals, but as a corporate nation, turned from God's love and spurned his grace, that there still, in the days of Paul, were many within Israel, a remnant within Israel, that had hearts longing for God. And so you come to Romans 11. There are two major descriptions of the remnant in the New Testament, many in the Old Testament. One is Romans 11, and the other is Revelation 12. Uh, Romans 11, verse 3, 4, and 5. Talking about the nation of Israel as a corporate whole, not individual Israelites. Verse 3, Romans 11. Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I'm alone left, and they seek my life. That's, of course, Elijah speaking. But what does the divine response say to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. In other words, Elijah thinks he's the only one. He's preparing for translation. And God says, no, Elijah. 7,000 have not bowed their knee to Baal. What would be another name for the 7,000? You've got it, the remnant, good. So, so another name for the 7,000 would be what? The remnant. So that's the context coming into verse 5. Now we come to verse 5. Even so then at this present time, Paul says. In other words, New Testament, we're talking about 45 AD or thereabouts. Even so at the present time, after the death of Christ, there is a what? Remnant according to the election of grace. And by grace, there, it, it's no longer by works, otherwise grace is not grace. So he said, even among Israel, there is this remnant, those whose hearts long for God, those that are faithful to God, and God is going to preserve them, he's going to gather them in to a New Testament movement that will impact the world. With that background, we now go to a clearer understanding of Revelation chapter 12. When you come to Revelation chapter 12, it can be divided into four parts. Revelation 12 is like four separate YouTube video scenes. So when you think of Revelation 12, YouTube typically takes short scenes. You know, 15 minutes on YouTube is pretty long, isn't it? So if you're producing a YouTube clip, how long is that clip going to be? Maybe four minutes, maybe five minutes. You're not going to want to go too long. When you think of Revelation, from, chap from verse 1 to verse 17, you have the great controversy between, in for the 6,000 years of human history, or thereabouts, you have that in 17 verses of Scripture. So Revelation, 17, Revelation 12 is like four YouTube clips. So you see the first clip, then it jumps to the second clip, then it jumps to the third clip, then it jumps to the fourth clip. The first video clip in Revelation 12, the viewer is taken and you see heaven. And in that clip, you see a battle between good and evil, a battle between Christ and Satan, a Star Wars conflict. And that's what it says in Revelation 12, 7 to 9. It says, and I saw, I looked up into heaven, 
And Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon was cast out of heaven. There was not a place prevail anymore for him. So, scene number one. Jesus wins, Satan loses, battle in heaven. Now the theme in each of these four clips is the same, although the scene differs. So you begin the great controversy, there's war in heaven, Lucifer wants to take over God's throne, he wants to usurp God's authority, he, the creature, wants to be worshipped rather than the creator, and so Lucifer is cast out of heaven. Then almost 2,000 years go by, 4,000 years go by, a period of time goes by, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, and then you focus in on the next video clip. And the next video clip from the fall of Lucifer in heaven is the birth of Christ in Revelation 12. And you see this video clip in which Satan, who warred against Jesus in heaven, now wants to destroy Christ on earth. A decree is passed that all male children under two be killed. And you see that video clip. But in that video clip, an angel appears to Joseph eventually, and Jesus goes to Egypt and he's protected. Jesus wins, Satan loses. That's the second video clip. Third video clip you see is a long period called the Dark or Middle Ages, a period of 1260 years where Satan tries to destroy the people of God, but again, Jesus wins, Satan loses. Then you come to this fourth video clip at an end time. You've seen that a third of the angels were faithful to God in heaven. You've seen that Jesus was faithful to God. You've seen that during the Middle Ages, God has had a church that is faithful to him. Now you come to Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And the dragon. Who's that dragon again? Satan. Was enraged. What's that mean? Angry. With the woman. How many women in Revelation? Two. What chapters are they found in? Twelve and seventeen. Twelve is the pure woman, the bride of Christ. The seventeen is the harlot woman. The dragon was enraged with the woman, went to make what? War. With what? The remnant of her seed, who keep the commandments of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. The expression, make war. The devil is angry with those that are faithful to God, that loyally reveal his love and grace to the world. And the devil will do anything he can to destroy them. And so here you have the devil making war. This war is also brought to view in Revelation 17. In Revelation chapter 17, a woman, the harlot woman, the one who's apostatized from the true faith, she has gone out after other lovers, she rides on a beast, so when you have a woman riding on a beast, the beast would represent the state powers, and the woman represent the fallen church powers, so you have the woman guiding, directing the state powers. So you have a union of political and religious powers here in Revelation 17. When you come to Revelation 17, verse 13, these are of one mind. So there's that one-mindedness between the religious and political powers. They give their power and authority to the beast. Verse 14, here's that expression, make war again. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those that are with him are called, are chosen, and are faithful. Now, what's another name for the called, the chosen, the faithful? The what? The remnant. The remnant are called by God for a special purpose. The remnant are chosen by God to be custodians of his last day truths of Scripture. When the remnant are faithful to God, he pours out his Holy Spirit through them to impact the world. So the devil hates that because the devil knows that the called, chosen, and faithful remnant will be empowered by the Spirit to proclaim his everlasting gospel and that 
the world will be impacted by the gospel, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to all nations, then what's going to happen? The end is going to come. The devil knows that, so he attacks the remnant. It's quite an interesting scene here in verse 14. They'll make war with the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them. Who wins in this battle? Does the dragon win? Who wins? The lamb overcomes them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Those that are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. What a picture. What a picture in the book of Revelation. Imagine this scene. Here is a brontosaurus or a T-Rex. How, how, how tall would they be? 18 feet maybe? I don't know, 20 feet, 30 feet? I don't know. Tallest animal I ever saw were these giraffes. We were flying in a helicopter over Africa, over an area, a very primitive area in Africa. And I saw giraffes heads above the trees eating from the top of the trees. And I looked out of the helicopter and that was the strangest thing I ever saw. Here you have all these giraffe's heads eating from the top of the trees. You may not think these mother giraffes are so large, but they are huge. But I'm picturing now a brontosaurus. Oh, maybe 20 feet, 25 feet tall. Uh, huge, weighing multiple tons. Breathing out fire. I don't know, do dragons breathe out fire? Uh, 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 that's just a myth, isn't it? Uh, okay, so here you have these huge, huge dragons. And you have a little tiny lamb. And the dragon approaches, breathing out fire, large fangs of teeth, claws, about ready to grab this little lamb, and the lamb is the appetizer, and throw it up in the air and swallow it. If you saw this huge dragon and a little lamb, what would your natural observation be? Your natural observation would be there's no way this lamb is going to win. <laughs> there is no way. But the lamb overcomes the dragon. Because little with Jesus is much, and small with Jesus is great. And no matter how oppressed the people of God are, no matter how oppressed the remnant are when the mark of the beast is enforced, no matter how the odds are against them, no matter how it looks that they will be destroyed, God's remnant are destined to victory. Jesus is going to triumph over the principalities and powers of hell at end time. He has triumphed over them in the cross. But at end time, his remnant, who go through the greatest time of trouble that this world has ever experienced, will be his ambassadors. The witness of his love and grace in the world will be impacted by them. We must take a look at the characteristics of this end time remnant. Just as God has preserved a people all through the Old and New Testament, just as God has preserved his posterity throughout Scripture, a group that have been faithful to him, pardoned by his grace, purified by his love, who have reflected his goodness, just like he has done that throughout the centuries. According to Revelation chapter 12, at end time God will also have a faithful remnant. They have been called out by God for a special purpose. They are faithful and loyal to God. The Bible describes this remnant as those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Let's unpack both of those things in the few minutes when our class comes to a close and tie some things together. It says they keep the commandments of God. This keeping the commandments of God is another expression used in Revelation on a number of occasions. In Revelation chapter 14, we find in Revelation 14, verse 7, a call to worship the Creator. In Revelation 14, verse 9, we find a call not to worship the beast. In Revelation 14, verse 12, those who do not worship the Creator, I mean those who do worship the Creator and those who do not worship the beast, are brought to view. They worship the Creator, they don't worship the beast. Revelation 14, verse 12, notice what it says. Here is the patience of the saints. That's here is the endurance of the believers. They are the faithful remnant. 
they, have, they are the posterity of Christ. They maintain the word of God. Patience means endurance. Saints are the believers. Here are those that do two things. They keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Now, I want to look at the expression of faith of Jesus. Does the passage say faith in Jesus? What does the passage say? Faith of Jesus. Is there a difference between faith in Jesus and the faith of Jesus? Is there a difference? Believers have faith in Jesus. The faith of Jesus is the quality of Jesus' faith living in our hearts and minds. So not only do we have faith in Jesus, that he's our redeemer, but the faith of Jesus fills our lives and transforms us. So this group of people not only have faith in Jesus, but they have the faith of Jesus. The quality of Jesus' faith lives in their hearts as a life transformational principle, making them over again. And it says they keep the commandments of God. In Revelation chapter 14, those who worship the Creator, specifically those who acknowledge the Creator by worshiping on the Sabbath, they, are, they keep God's commandments because they have Christ's faith living in them, not as some external legalistic requirement for salvation, but because the dynamic, life-giving faith of Christ leads them to obedience. Their faith is so good, it works. Faith always manifests itself in works. And if faith does not manifest itself in works, it is not faith at all, it's presumption. So what do we know about the remnant? They are preserved by God. They are pardoned by Christ. They are gathered together to be a testimony of his grace to the world. The quality of Christ's faith lives in their lives. They are an end-time generation people who reveal his love and their, their faith leads them to obedience to his commandments. Now, there is one other aspect of this end-time remnant that we must look at. And it's found, again, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. It says, the dragon is angry with the woman, goes to make war with the remnant. This is not some spiritual elite group. It is a chosen group of, by God. It is those who are faithful to God. It is those that are loyal to God. It is those that have the heart desire to serve God. They keep the commandments of God. They have the testimony of Jesus. Now let's unpack that. See if there is deeper meaning in that than we previously thought. The testimony of Jesus. What is another word for testimony? What's another word for testimony? Who gives their testimony? A witness. So they have the witness from Jesus. If Jesus sends a witness to witness of his truth. I want to know about that witness, don't you? Okay, but let's go to Revelation 19, verse 10. Revelation 19, verse 10. Let's try to unpack this whole idea of the testimony of Jesus, the witness. John falls at his feet to worship the angel that brings to him the book of Revelation. You know this passage well, but we're going to unpack it a little bit. Revelation 19, verse 10. I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See thou do it not. I am your fellow servant. Now, if you're, if you're underlining, underlining fellow servant, we're going to come back to that in another Bible passage. I'm your, of your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is what? The spirit of prophecy. So Jesus witnesses to his church through the gift of prophecy. That's the way Christ witnesses to his church, through the prophetic gift. Now, this is really confirmed further in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation uh, chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, verse 9. Revelation 22, verse 9. Remember I talked to you about that expression, fellow servant? Here it is again. Revelation 22, verse 9. Then he said to me, See that thou do it not. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets. So you have something added here that you didn't have in Revelation 19.10, the expression of your brethren, the prophets. So in Revelation 12.17, it says that 
Christ's end-time remnant will be guided and directed by the testimony of Jesus. The word testimony means witness. In Revelation 19.10, it says that the testimony of Jesus is the gift of prophecy. In, and the angel identifies himself as a fellow servant with John, who is a prophet. When you come to Revelation 22, it talks about fellow servants of the prophets. So what is the testimony of Jesus? It is Christ witnessing through his prophets to the church. Now this is further confirmed in 1 Peter. So let's go back to 1 Peter, and we'll bring this all to a conclusion. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. What is the testimony of Jesus? It is Christ witnessing to his church through the gift of prophecy. And you're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1. And let, let your eyes drop down to verse 10. 1 Peter 1 verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The Spirit of Christ testified or witnessed through the Old Testament prophets of the Messiah that was to come. So what did Isaiah have? Isaiah had the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Christ working through Isaiah predicted Jesus would be born of a virgin. What about Jeremiah? What about Ezekiel? What about Daniel? The spirit of Christ working through Daniel, that is the spirit of prophecy. So what is the spirit of prophecy? It is Christ witnessing through a prophet, through a messenger of his grace and goodness and his will for his people. So what does Revelation chapter 12 predict? It predicts that in the last days of earth's history, God would have a remnant. A group of men and women and young people that were called out by him, preserved by his grace from the culture of their time, that would be totally committed to him, sold out for him. This group of people would be called by God, pardoned by God, purified by God, preserved by God. This group of people would be guided. This remnant would have the DNA of the original. Their whole desire would be to be faithful to Christ. They would have the quality of Christ's faith living in their heart as a dynamic principle that would lead them to be obedient to God's commandments. And they would be guided and directed by the Spirit of Christ working through the prophetic gift. Seventh-day Adventists believe that that was manifest through Ellen White. And we make no apology for that. You know, on one occasion, James White was challenged by an evangelical minister. And the evangelical minister said, We believe in the Bible. You folk have Ellen White. And James White simply looked at him and said, the difference between you and me is this. You only believe in part of the Bible, and we believe in all of it. We believe in that part that speaks about the gift of prophecy. God is preparing a group of Seventh-day Adventist young people to impact the world as a last-day remnant. Who you understand yourself to be makes all the difference. Identity. Who are we? Not arrogantly, not proudly, but we sense that we're the people of God to impact the world. And there could be nothing greater than to understand that destiny and live it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you as we've studied the Old Testament remnant, the New Testament remnant. We thank you. We praise you for what you have done in raising up a people. As the Old Testament says, you've gathered the lame into a remnant. you gathered the outcast. 
We are weak and broken and fallen, but redeemed by your grace, charmed by your love, forgiven, empowered. We leave this place with a humble sense of an identity in Christ, a remnant identity, to go out and impact the world for you. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.